So Paul is piling up the arguments for God's favor towards us. Incredible, really. This is not something that it's let out on a a rope very, very slowly. This grace, this goodness, this favor of God towards us. He is piling it on. And it's wonderful to see how uh, enthusiastically he does it. Let's read uh, this passage again. Romans 8, verses 31 onwards. What, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against? us, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And now the verses for today. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who makes also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? You see what Paul is doing? He's showing that God the Father and Jesus the Son are in tandem. They are, one is not convincing the other. That 19th century old-fashioned idea that Jesus is pleading his blood before the Father is not true. It is a, a misunderstanding. Of course, we know what they were trying to get at, but we mustn't misunderstand that imagery as if Jesus were having to convince, convince a reluctant father. It's not the case. What Paul is showing us here is that the Father is that the Son is as eager as the Father to save us, and the Father is as eager as the Son to save us. Who is he who condemns? Once again, we're looking at court uh, language here, the law court language. Uh, God has justified us, God is in our favor. Uh, God is not bringing a charge against us. These are all, it is God who justifies. These are all law court terms. Uh, It's more than, of course, a law court because God's passionate love is involved. But the law court idea is beautiful in the sense that we are looking here at a bringing forward, as it were, of the judgment, the final judgment. The final judgment is a sort of law court, and yet it isn't, because God is going to defend the people as he is doing here in Christ. Who is he who condemns? Does Jesus condemn us? It is Christ who died. How could Christ die for us one minute and condemn us in the next? He's not into double talk. He's not into unfaithfulness and inconsistency. If Jesus died for our sins, Jesus does not condemn us. Who is he who condemns? Now, you see, that kind of truth is very difficult to keep in our minds by faith when we are struggling with sins or struggling with addictions. We feel condemned. We feel ashamed. We feel guilty. But that is where faith must speak into the mind and direct the mind and train the mind. I hope over all the weeks and months you've listened and been listening to this program, and perhaps for years, you are getting the point of how the mind is trained by faith. 
It's as if the secular person has no clue about this. It's as if the secular person thinks the mind determines everything. The mind tells us we're bad, we feel bad. The mind tells us we're good, the mind, we feel good. We are dictated by the diktats of the mind. It is not so, because faith enters, and faith is a gift from God, and faith educates the mind. And faith educates the mind in grace and truth and mercy and love, the love of God for us. So as we learn faith, we create a stable sense of mind. And when we have a stability in our minds, we begin to see victories over our addiction. Because, you see, addiction starts not with the drug of choice, but with the state of mind. If you allow your mind to tell you you're no good, you're stupid, you'll never amount to anything, you're abandoned, nobody loves you, if you allow your mind to speak like that without any intervention by faith, you will be brought down. But faith will lift you. Faith will give you courage to go on. So who is he who condemns? Certainly not Jesus Christ. It is he who died. It is Christ who died. And furthermore is also risen. You see, we have a truth and a proof about our faith. Our faith is not simply something uh, that the mind conjures up or that is ethereal and cannot be measured or cannot be pinned down in some way. Yes, it can be pinned down. And how is it pinned down? It is pinned down by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ rose from the dead. 500 people witnessed it. It was prophesied, and it happened. And it is the foundation of our faith. The fact that Jesus rose is the proof positive that our God loves us, that our God is determined to give us eternal life, that our God has broken the power of death, and that death is not a permanent thing. What a wonderful hope we have. Who is he then that condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen. And what's he doing now then? Who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Now when it says that Christ is at the right hand of God, it means, among many other things, that Christ is governing. Remember what it says in Matthew 28, Jesus said, All power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is ruling. That is something that we sort of find contradictory or or doesn't sit well with us sometimes because we simply see Jesus as our Savior, and rightly so, but he's also our governor. Remember that the government is upon his shoulders, according to Isaiah. Remember also that he is the one who upholds the whole universe according to Colossians chapter 1. He holds it together. He sustains it. Our Jesus is governing. Now that means that Jesus is governing over our difficulties and troubles. That's why we can say all things work together for good, as Paul says in uh, a few verses earlier in chapter 8, verse 28. All things work together for good. How in the world can they possibly do that? Because Christ is ruling. The events that happen to us are not simply cause and effect. 
They are grace intercepting cause and effect. Grace intervening in cause and effect. If you do something wrong, that's a cause, and the effect is something bad, isn't it? If you do something disastrously mistaken, then the effect is a disaster, isn't it? Or is it? Because, you see, grace intervenes. Yes, there may be a bad effect, but grace intervenes in that bad effect and also brings good out of it, even if it's the training of our faith only, or if it's the change of circumstances. But the point is, when Jesus governs our life, You can pray and ask him to intervene in the things we do and the mistakes we make. Sometimes Jesus will intervene, and sometimes he will let circumstances roll out, not automatically, but let them roll out by cause and effect. Because there may be things that we have to learn, but not because he has condemned us. For he does not condemn any more. Who is he who condemns? Verse 34, once again. It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is also at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Now this is where that 19th century imagery of Jesus pleading his blood to convince his father uh, comes in and is a mistaken kind of imagery. When Jesus is making intercession for us, He is not trying to convince the Father to love us, because the Father himself, God himself, wills to love us. God himself delights in us. God himself sent his Son. If God is for us, who can be against us? As it says in verse 32, He who did not spare his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? So the Father is in our favor. Jesus does not have to convince us. That is, Jesus does not have to convince the Father. So what is the intercession then? Well, I think it's spoken and explained for our sakes, not for God's sake. We sometimes find it difficult to believe that the God of the universe who holds, who creates everything and who knows all could possibly know about the little trivia and details of our lives. We need to be convinced that he does by somebody coming on our side and being like us, that is Jesus, and taking all our little details, all our little worries and concerns to the Father. You remember that passage in Matthew where uh, Jesus in chapter 7 tells us not to worry not to worry about what we shall eat or what we shall put on uh, or what uh, we shall wear and, and, and the days of our lives. I mean, it seems almost unreal, doesn't it? But when we think about it, I was thinking about it as a matter of fact the other night, I thought, this is the description of a child. A child does not worry about what he's going to eat, does he? A child doesn't worry about what clothes he's going to put on. Do you remember your childhood days when you didn't have to worry about those things? Do you remember the time when you slowly slipped from uh, childhood into adulthood or teenage years and you began to worry about certain things? Boy, what a difference. 
And so really, Jesus, when described telling us not to worry, he's telling us to develop the heart of a child. Not to be irresponsible, mind you. We still take care of, have to take care of our bills and what have you, but not to worry about them. Not to worry about them, but to have the heart of a child because the Father is caring for us. This is what we need to know. And Jesus is the one who comes as a human being into our realm, into our humanity, into the spoils of life, and simply says, I know all about it, tell me about it, and I'll take all this good news, all this bad news, all these details of yours to my Father. And he does. Our Jesus is our wonderful intercessor. So we have a connection with God through Jesus that makes it so much more reassuring. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, we are tempted to think that troubles separate us from the love of Christ. This verse is telling us by um, uh, this question, a rhetorical question, that nothing separates us from the love of Christ. You may think, yes, but my depressions do, Colin. I go into silent mode so very often. I just go dull, and uh, I my mind stops thinking, and I stop talking to God. I even stop talking to myself and become like a, do- a zombie. Listen, not even that state of mind separates you from the love of God. And you can speak into God, into that void, uh, and talk to God, or sing to yourself, or even talk to yourself and you are safe because nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Thank you for joining me, Colin Cook here, and how it happens. If I may be so bold, I need your support. Uh, Donations are low at the moment, and if you could help out, it would be so very much appreciated. The program now, you know, is in its 26th year and all as a result of God's grace and your help because this is listener-supported radio. Each program costs $39 and that's $200 a week for a week's programs and that's about $850 to $900 per month. Some people may think, well, that's a small budget. Well, not for a small ministry like this. This is a long-lasting ministry, 43 years 46 years rather, but still needing you and therefore still needing your support as a small ministry. Please then send your donation to FaithQuest PO Box 366, Littleton, Colorado 80160 or online at faithquestradio.com. Thanks. See you next time. Cheerio and God bless.